0: Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, if you were on the top of the Empire State Building looking down, could you tell the difference between a man five feet tall and a man six feet tall? No. On returning to the ground floor, however, the difference is obvious. Looking down from a high vantage point, everyone looks the same, even though there are real differences among them. God, in a very real sense, is looking down upon the whole human race from a high vantage point. He's not looking upon your height, but upon your holiness. From his perspective, what he sees is described in Romans three, ten, and 23, part of what we sometimes call the Romans' road. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Since God is infinitely holy, God's standard of righteousness is Absolute perfection. It matters little in heaven whether one man is better in some ways than another because all still fall short of perfection. Our problem is we don't look down from heaven. We look around on the earth. Looking around, we can see differences between the righteousness of men. Not all men are as bad as they can be, and some men are better than others. We are usually better than most. I mean, that's just being honest. (laughs) When we compare ourselves to human standards of righteousness, we look pretty tall. We're in the six-foot category. But from God's vantage point, we are short the righteousness needed to be accepted into His presence. When you quit looking around and look up, you quickly understand how very short you are of the perfect righteousness God requires. Now, as we begin chapter 2, the righteousness of the two main biblical divisions of the human race is going to be dealt with. Anyone not born a Jew is considered a Gentile. We are Gentiles unless you happen to uh, be of Jewish heritage. Verses 1 through 16 of this chapter will deal with Gentiles. And then verses 17 all the way through chapter 3, verse 8, Seems like it deals with the Jews. Now, in these verses, God is not looking at their righteousness as compared with other men. He's looking upon the heart. In verse 16, you read of Gentiles. God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. And then in verse 29, you would read of the Jews. He is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart. And so God is looking at the heart of the Gentile, and then the heart of the Jew with respect to righteousness and holiness. What if you are unaware of God's standards? After all, Gentiles were not privileged to the things that belong to God's special nation, Israel. They were not privileged to what Paul will call in chapter 3, the oracles of God. Surely God cannot hold you accountable for being unrighteous. Well, yes, he can, and yes, he will. He will hold you accountable for your unrighteousness before him because you were not without a witness. True, you didn't have his commandments, but you did have conscience, which Paul will argue witnesses to you about God and his commandments. And so let's look at verse 1. He starts off, he says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge, another You condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Now, this isn't a verse about being judgmental or anything like that. Paul is answering an argument here, the argument being, hey, God can't hold me accountable uh, for being unrighteous because I didn't know any better. I wasn't a Jew. I'm not the chosen people. We didn't have the oracles of God. We didn't have the, you know, the pentateuch or any of those things so i'm clean the fact what paul's saying here is that the fact you can recognize and condemn what is wrong in others shows that you know the difference between right and wrong if you know it is wrong for someone for example to covet your property then you know it's wrong for you to covet someone else's property we call this conscience Conscience is your mental faculty by which you judge your actions and those of others and then pass a judgment on those actions. Conscience is an internal witness. It's in your heart that you live in a moral universe of God's design and that you are responsible and accountable for your decisions and actions. While not a full revelation of God's law, it is essentially in agreement with what God further reveals more perfectly in his law. Conscience is a goad, not a guide. If you listen to your conscience, you cannot help but understand that you fall short of perfect righteousness and therefore you need help. It can therefore be a goad into you seeking the Lord. Since you have this internal witness, you condemn yourself for, it says, you who judge practice the same things. Look at some of the things listed at the end of chapter 1. That's what Paul was referring back to. Who among us can say we've never coveted anything? I, I saw a beautiful red Corvette drive down the street. It was, I was there at... Uh, uh, not Greenfield. Yeah, I guess it's Greenfield, you know, where, where Royal Quick Lube is, you know, right there on 11. Is that Greenfield that goes by there? I don't know. Whatever, whatever street that is. Um, you know, you live in a town. Uh, people always ask, well, where is it? I don't know. You go down to Royal Quick Lube and turn right. You know, there's no street names as far as I'm concerned. But uh, beautiful red Corvette. Looked like Lightning McQueen. I thought, man, this would be cool. And then I thought, then that little voice said, Gene, you'll never own a Corvette. Just forget about it. I drove a Corvette one time. So, you know, that's pretty cool. Uh, anyway, so who hasn't coveted anything or had envy or pride or have never been disobedient to your parents? That's a, that's a killer. Or have never been unloving or unforgiving or unmerciful? Those are all things that Paul had listed at the end of chapter 1. None, not one of us, can say we are innocent All of us know by conscience that we have fallen short. And so verse 2 says, But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Your conscience further tells you that God is right for judging such things as you judge in others. That there is right and wrong. Verse 3, And do you think this, O man... You who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God. Conscience is intended to lead you to the conclusion that you, too, deserve judgment and are lost in your sin. So it's a very simple argument. Paul says you don't think. God should hold you accountable, but you know the difference between right and wrong. You know when people wrong you, and if you judge others for doing wrong, then you can judge yourself. And if you really start judging yourself, who among you can say they've never done these things that these wicked pagans have done? Maybe they do them worse, but you can see that you're not right. There's something wrong with you. What are you going to do about it? And and. and Paul is building up to this idea that conscience, when paid attention to by a person who doesn't know the Lord and hasn't heard about the Lord, can goad them in the direction of seeking the Lord. Verse four, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Nonbelievers like to point out that God doesn't seem to be doing anything about the sins of men about the presence of evil in the world. It's not a delay, however. It's God's goodness, His forbearance, and His long-suffering waiting for more to be led to repentance, or as we would say, to get saved. Repentance is a turning to God from sin. It's a coming into the knowledge of God. Notice the word leads. Since midway through chapter 1, we've been talking about God's efforts to save lost men and women. Here we see again that among those who lack revelation, who only have conscience, God is nevertheless at work through what he has provided, namely conscience, to lead those who respond to it towards finding him. He wants to lead men to repentance. Remember the context. He's talking about uh, individuals who haven't heard the gospel, who are saying, you can't hold me responsible for what I don't know. And God says, yes, I can. And in fact... Not only will I hold you responsible, but I'm leading you to repentance. This all agrees with Acts 17 that I'm fond of quoting, where Paul says that God himself scattered people all over the world so that for the purpose of them groping after him and finding him. And so I'm I'm going to start calling the unbelieving heathen gropers. They're groping. The idea is that they're in dark, you know, sometimes in, you ever get up, is your house dark at night? I mean, some people like their houses dark, some people have lights on and stuff. I, we're kind of in between. Sometimes it's really dark at night and you grope down the hall. You know, you're just like, where am I and stuff. And God, God depicts men, he says, I've scattered them so that they will respond to their conscience and grope. And as they grope, I will lead them to greater light. Uh, and, and so they are being led to repentance. Verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Everyone can relate to saving up and storing up for the future. A person who ignores conscience and refuses to turn towards God is storing up for their future as well. But it's not the kind of treasure that will sustain you. It will result in wrath and judgment. When can we expect God's judgment? Well, that's the subject of verses 6 through 10. It says, He will render to each one according to his deeds. God will render to each one according to his deeds as a review of your life. God is looking back over your life to reward you for your works. The person depicted here would already be in eternity. God reviews their deeds to determine their reward. It's interesting, uh, as I was thinking about this this week, only believers will have any works that are rewardable. That's because, by definition, good works do not begin until after a person is saved. Uh, Before then, whatever you do, it might be better than some and not as bad as others, but it it can't be said to be good because it doesn't have... uh, any real merit it's not being done for the Lord when asked what shall we do that we might work the works of God Jesus answered this is the work of God that you believe on him who he has sent and so we could argue that the first good work anyone can do is to believe and be saved and so so they asked Jesus what are the good works that God wants us to do and he says there's there's one and that is to believe on me And so that seems to indicate that until you do that, you can't really do any good works. But once you do that, then uh, you are led by God to discover the good works that he has before ordained for you. And so before and until you get saved, you really can't do anything that is good. After you are saved, you are empowered to discover the good works God has before ordained for you. After you are saved, verse 7 describes you. Unless you get saved, verses 8 and 9 describe you. And so verse 7 says, Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. Now these verses, very important to understand in their context. Taken by themselves, it almost sounds as if you could perform certain deeds and by them earn your salvation. But that's not the case. Remember, God is looking back. Those doing good were doing good because they had gotten saved in order uh, they had gotten saved, not in order to get saved. Likewise, those who are self seeking and do not obey the truth. They were lost. They refused to respond to conscience and be led to further revelation from God. And so Paul is just giving the disposition of, uh, of men. Those that respond to the revelation of God, God will bring them greater revelation. They can be saved. Those that don't won't be saved. And as he reviews their life, some, those who are saved will have had good works. And those who are not will have no works. Of righteousness that that they can uh, bring before the Lord doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek meaning a Gentile by saying the Jew first Paul's acknowledging the advantage Jews had since they were in possession of a fuller revelation than the Gentiles but both Jew and Gentile were subject to the same judgment and both would be judged accordingly because he says in verse 11 there's no partiality with God as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law and as many of us sinned in the law, will be judged by the law. What this is saying is that men will be judged based on the amount of revelation they were given. If creation and conscience are your only witness, you can respond favorably and God will see to it that you receive further revelation. If you reject the revelation you will perish even though you did not have the greater revelation of the law. Again, remember, Paul's dealing with the argument. I never heard. I don't know what you're talking about. God has to pass over me because it would be unfair for him to judge me. And Paul says, no, you had your conscience and it was intended to lead you to repentance. You chose to reject it. You who judge others never judged yourself. Uh, you you could have known that you are falling short and in need of help and God would have brought you greater revelation, but you didn't, and so you're going to be judged on that basis. Those who have God's law and a greater revelation, they're going to be judged by the law. Uh, And later on, as we read through the New Testament, we'll talk about the law, and you'll see that if you can't keep the law perfectly... Uh, then you can't go to heaven. The truth is, if a man could keep the law perfectly from the womb without ever sinning, then he could qualify for heaven. But no one can do that because we're born with a sin nature. Actually, we, even before that, sin is imputed to our account. Uh, and so you're just, you're just lost. You're hopeless. But what Paul is saying here is that I, God is going to judge accordingly, according to the amount of revelation that you have. Uh, and, and you will stand or fall based on what you did with that revelation. And so verse 13, Not for, the, uh, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Paul teaches elsewhere that it's impossible to be justified by obeying God's law, even if you could keep it from a point in time moving forward, you could still not be justified because God requires that which was passed as well. So, what is Paul getting at? Remember again, dealing with an argument folks have that God isn't fair for uh, that it isn't fair for God to hold men accountable for being sinners when they don't have a full revelation of the law. Paul was simply pointing out again that even those who have only creation and conscience still know right from wrong by nature in our context, means because of the way God has constituted us to have a conscience. Though not having the law, conscience still testifies that there is right and wrong. It's interesting, one author suggested, and I just throw it out to you, that other than the Sabbath commandment, which would require special revelation for God to tell man in the Ten Commandments to keep the Sabbath, other than that, it could be argued that men everywhere have some basic understanding of the rightness of the other nine commandments. Uh, they, they have an innate knowledge of the other nine, not as they're stated, you know, in the law, but just in a natural sense. Like we talked about coveting before. Uh, y- you just know that, you know, it's I mean, it's you know, you see it in the nursery, When the bigger kid comes over and takes the ball, the other little kid knows that was wrong. That was my ball. I was playing with the ball. And they look at the nursery worker. What are you going to do about this? My little conscience is telling me that this is wrong. I want the ball. And the other kid, he's like, you know, he's on his way to being a lifetime criminal now he's gotten away with taking the ball he knows it was wrong to get the ball he coveted that ball he knows it's wrong because then the bigger kid comes over and he takes his ball and he says hey come on that was my ball maybe it was wrong for me to take it but once I had it, possession is nine-tenths of the law and you know I mean so it's not a perfect reasoning it's not a perfect situation but even children know Right from wrong in a weird kind of selfish way, and and so you know, uh, and so if you look through some of the commandment, you know, uh, it's hey, that's my wife. Yeah, I'm taking her. No, you're not. There's something wrong with that. You you just know innately that it's wrong, and so God has given us this nature to understand right from wrong. The fact uh, it says in verse 15 who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. The fact men know right from wrong shows the work of the law written in their hearts. Now notice it doesn't show the law written in their hearts. They don't have God's law written in their hearts as if it was engraved like on the Ten Commandments. But the works of the law or what the law would demand of them if they had the law is in their hearts. Even without having God's written revelation, men act in accordance with what is written in it. At least they act in accordance with it until they reject God. Then they begin to spiral downward as we read at the end of chapter 1. Your conscience bears witness that this is a moral universe subject to God's perfect righteousness. Conscience does one of two things. Then it either accuses you or it excuses you. It either accuses you of your unrighteousness. You know something's wrong with you and it leads you to grope after God so that he can lead you to repentance. Or it excuses you for your unrighteousness and you harden your heart against God's conviction. Conscience is not infallible. It can be silenced and eventually rendered moot. If we sin against our conscience long enough, we will silence it, and we will cease to you know understand that what we' are doing is really wrong uh, in some areas. And you see this in our society. In, in every society, but in our society today, as we talked about last week, men pass laws that legalize things that are clearly wrong, that are against nature, that are, have, you know, uh, by revelation we know that they're wrong, and men have no conscience about it anymore. They have no shame about it. They have no real embarrassment about it because they're, uh, they're um, allowing their conscience to excuse them rather than to accuse them. Uh, And so that's what Paul is talking about. Either way, you see that your conscience condemns you as unrighteous before a holy God who will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. If your conscience accuses you and you're sensitive to it and you're seeking after God, you realize that you're not as righteous as you need to be because you, you, you don't want people to covet your goods. You know that's wrong, but you know that you covet their goods. You don't want anybody to cover covet your little blue clown car that you drive around in. But you want that red Corvette. You want that red Corvette. Or Actually, what I want is a 64 Malibu ragtop. But anyway, that's. Anyway, (laughs) fully restored. Don't give me a piece of junk. But anyway, uh, so either your your conscience accuses you. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I'll go to Ron's shop. I'm sure he's got an old junk car out there, and I'll put it in Pastor Gene's driveway, and won't that be funny? (laughs) One year at Christmas time, somebody put maybe 25 or 30... uh, You know how they don't sell all the trees at the lots? I came out in the morning, and they had like 25 or 30 of these Christmas trees around Gene's Corvair in the driveway. And it, was, it, was, it wasn't funny for a minute. Do you know how hard it is to dispose of 35-foot Christmas trees? It was rough. No one ever copped to that as far as I know. I'm still waiting to find out who stole my rapture picture from the cafe. This has been going on for about four years now. Just because I had a spare, I foiled the thief, but... We came into the cafe one day about four years ago and uh, somebody had put up a Thomas Kincaid print where my rapture poster was. And I thought, after a few days, somebody will cop to it. Never. And so some Christian, (laughs) and I use that term loosely, (laughs) stole my rapture picture. I wouldn't want to be that person. (laughs) Anyway, so the fact that I know that I covet, the fact that I, you know, see that coveting is wrong and that I covet, I understand that there's something wrong, essentially wrong. I, I don't have a revelation. It's not like somebody is preaching the gospel to me and saying, this is the problem and here's the whole story. That would be better. But I still know enough to think, wow, I have to do something about this. I'm not right. And God is saying here that that person who allows their conscience to accuse them, I will lead them. They will grope and I will lead. That's what we believe. On the other hand, we can just as easily, more easily, excuse our conscience and say, well, I, you know. Uh, maybe I covet things every now and then, but who doesn't? And after all, life is unfair. And I deserve this, and I deserve that, and you know those kinds of things. And that person is going to, they're not, certainly not groping after God. They're walking in selfishness, storing up for themselves uh, these other things that Paul talked about. Either way, conscience condemns you whether you realize it or not. And it says, God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. That that is, he will judge you based on what you did with Jesus. Now, wait a minute. We've been talking about people with very limited revelation who've probably never heard of Jesus. How can God judge their secrets, their hearts, we might say, by Jesus, if they've never heard of him to receive or reject him? Well, let me ask you this. Had Adam and Eve really ever heard of Jesus Did they know what God was really doing when he spoke to them? Uh, I mean, you you read the account in Genesis. It doesn't say, I'm going to send my son Jesus Christ through the nation of Israel, which doesn't exist yet, by the way. Uh, And, you know, he he didn't give Adam and Eve the complete gospel. He just told them, I'm going to solve your problem if you will exchange your... Uh, fig leaves for these sacrificed animals. And they believed God and it was accounted unto them for righteousness. How about Abram? Did he know who Jesus was? We're still trying to figure out the strangers who visited them. Who, who We don't even know who they were half the time. It was God and two angels. But, you know, guys argue about that. Did you, Abram didn't know very When he was sacrificing his son Isaac on Mount Moriah... All he knew was that if he killed Isaac, God would raise him from the dead. He didn't, he didn't get all excited halfway up and say, This is a type of, of God sending His Son, Jesus Christ, in the first century. But God accounted it unto him for righteousness. What about Job? And that poor guy, he didn't know very much really at all about who Jesus was. None of them had a very complete revelation of Jesus, but they could nonetheless believe God, believe what they did know, what God had revealed to them, and it counted for righteousness and they were saved. Or they could reject it as all those on the earth prior to the flood did, with the exception of Noah and his family. That's what Paul's talking about. He says men are without excuse. They didn't know, Adam didn't know, Job didn't know, Abram didn't know. The men of Noah's time didn't know, but Noah knew you know, enough to get saved. Uh, and, and so God has given men enough to grope after him. Even though they had incomplete revelation of Jesus, we would say it's still his work on the cross that ultimately saved them. Adam and Eve were saved in the garden, not because God slaughtered lambs, but because they represented his son, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world. And so even though they didn't know that, That is what saved them. Jesus Christ saved them in the Garden of Eden long before He ever came. They didn't have to have the knowledge of that. They just had to believe God that He had solved their problem. And so the fact that salvation is through Jesus Christ alone does not mean you must know everything there is about Jesus in order to be saved. If it's still hard to wrap your head around the idea of someone being saved by believing who has never heard of Jesus... Listen to this quote by a conservative reform theologian. He says, People who die without hearing the gospel will be judged according to the knowledge they have. They'll be judged guilty for rejecting God the Father. If men reject Christ, they face a double judgment of rejecting both the Father and the Son. And so God holds you accountable for what you know based on what you might not be able to know, and that is the finished, final, full work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul called this message my gospel. Some were accusing Paul of adding to or subtracting from the message of salvation. Indeed, a little later on in Romans, Paul will let us know that some of his critics accused him of giving believers a license to sin because of his seeming overemphasis on grace. And so people would come to Paul on time and say, you're making this up. This isn't God. This isn't the gospel. This isn't good news. If we teach grace... People are going to sin left and right all over the place. They're going to be led to sin. And Paul says, should should we sin that grace might abound? He goes, you must not be understanding God's grace. A person who really understands the grace of God would never think that they could sin against it. You know, growing up I thought, man, if I can fool my parents, I can do all kinds of crazy things. I can be free to do all these wild and weird things, Uh, you know, but that was wrong. And and, and so a Christian doesn't think like, you know, if I tell somebody, if I tell you, man, you're under grace, you, you have liberty. If your first thought is, well, I'm going to go out and push my liberty to the limit then. God forbid, Paul says, then you don't understand the grace of God. Uh, And so, Paul was always getting accused of adding something to the gospel or subtracting something from the gospel. When Paul said, this is my gospel, he meant that the gospel he was preaching, Paul's gospel, was the gospel, the same one preached by the followers of Jesus Christ, all of them. It leaves everyone without excuse, but offers whosoever will believe salvation in Jesus Christ. I want to close with this quote by a missionary, uh, Nazarene by the name of Edward Lawler. He said, If God's love is for anybody, anywhere, it's for everybody, everywhere. Will all people get saved? Sadly, no. All you have to do is look back at Noah and see that the vast majority of people, which is a quite an understatement, uh, were, they perished because they refused the witness that God gave them. Their conscience started off accusing them, but they ended up letting it excuse them, and they rejected the light that God gave during that dark time. Noah let his conscience accuse him, and he was drawn to God. God led him to repentance. He and his family were saved. And so that's what Paul is saying. saying. He's answering the argument, what about people who don't know God's standard of righteousness? How can God hold them accountable and judge them? Why? How can he send them to hell? Which, by the way, he doesn't do. They choose that. But Paul answers that. He says, hey, they have conscience. And God is at work to lead them to repentance. Uh, and, and they will find him if they grope after him. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord.